0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, September 20th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello everybody. Margo sanger to The New York Times. Good morning. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And a programming note, next week we will be coming to you from Austin, Texas, where the podcast will be part of the annual Trip Fest put on by the Texas Tribune. If you're hanging around Austin, come join us. And if you're here in D.C., Kaiser Health News is holding a live event on overtreatment moderated by my colleague Liz Zabo, here at our downtown office next Thursday, September 27th at 1230. We'll put links to both events on the podcast Webpage at khn.org. So let's get to the news. And we have a lot of news from Capitol Hill this week, which we don't get to say very often. <laughs> um, first up, the Senate this week passed a big bill intended to help fight the opioid epidemic. This was after the House earlier this summer passed its own package. I think it's fair to say that just about everybody from both parties who is running for re-election wants to be able to say they did something to address the opioid problem. But aside from giving lawmakers a political feather for their caps, how much would this legislation actually do to address the problem of opioids?
1: I think that people, that's been one of the criticisms of this bill is that it doesn't go far enough, according to medical providers and some of the groups. It's not that there's anything in the bill that would be wrong or that would be a bad
0: idea. What are some of the kinds of things that are actually in this bill?
1: Sure. So let me talk about first some of the things they have to work out. Um, one of the things they have to work out is money because they have a Medicaid provision that would expand inpatient care. Right now there's a limit.
0: You can for, all, oh, for people with for opioid, people for and substance and, abuse yeah. problems. Right? For
1: Yes, mental health and substance abuse. So there are, you can only have a treatment at an inpatient facility that's 16 beds or less. They wanna expand that. The house version would be only for opioid abuse and for cocaine. The Senate version doesn't have anything at all. And uh, Rob Portman and, and Dick Durbin. So it's
0: broader. The house nope.
1: has. Oh, the has. Oh, the, the, house said, has
0: more oh, oh, the Senate it. doesn't have it. That's All right. right.
1: The okay. And for didn't.
2: listeners, if you're hearing anything that the initials IMD and you don't know what it's about, that's what Rebecca's explaining right yes. now. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. Yes.
0: Well, not yet another of the the many, many, many. <laughs> so many acronyms.
2: I know.
3: And uh, the, the, part of the reason why this particular provision is not in the Senate bill, is that by expanding access to these inpatient facilities for Medicaid patients, it's going to cost Medicaid more money because if they go, it's expensive. And so the CBO estimates that that's going to cost the federal government money. And I think on the House side, they've found other ways to raise the money to make up for the cost of that change. But the Senate feels like those things are kind of politically controversial, and so they would rather not have that fight.
2: Right. So wait, and the pri- there's also some privacy legislation. There right? there
1: is. Um I do think that this will be worked out in conference because this bipartisan amendment that came out yesterday does seem to be getting some traction, but they they have to work out the money. What the senators want to do is is go even further than the House version. They want to expand it for 90 days rather than 30 days. So Coming up with the money is an issue. Um, the privacy issue that Joanne just mentioned is um, related to the fact that people who have addiction problems, they have to explicitly consent to allow their provider to, to know about that history. And this is separate from the privacy rules uh, that we all refer to as HIPAA, another acronym. Um, so this is there was a provision that Mark Wayne Mullen, an Oklahoma Republican, put in in the House version that's a little bit controversial. Joanne probably wants to talk about it.
2: Um, it's, it's right now that it's, it's quite cumbersome. I mean, the, the, the reason for these laws, these restrictions, is, is in our society, m- uh, mental health problems and addiction is still stigmatic, and privacy is important. But if you're treating an opioid, someone with an opioid or other substance abuse problems, you know, the doctor needs to know, like if you show up at the emergency room not to, with a broken leg, not to give you opioids or things like that. Um, so this doesn't create um, a blanket, no privacy. Um, it's gone through a few iterations, and I think the one that ended up in the house is that if you can, cons- you still have to give consent, the patient still has to give consent, um, but it's not one provider at a time. It's within a healthcare system. So it's still not universal that everybody is, am, am I right? That's the version of the, got- I believe that's the, there, w- there were negotiations various versions. I'm pretty sure. And, that- and there still are negotiations. Right. I mean, it may just, so, I, I think it's you give consent, you still have to get, the patient still has to give consent, but it's, it's not for the whole world. You're not waiving all your privacy rights, but it does make it easier for people who are actually. Likely to treat you and work. You know, it's not. You know, this pri- this doctor's on this shift and that one comes in or, or different specialists that that the providers will get a fuller uh, picture. And um, you know, it's it is somewhat controversial because the the mental health community is actually split on this because of the stigma privacy issues. But I do think um, this has an even weirder acronym. Was it Part Two, CF two, two yes. CFR Four <laughs> or something? Um, I think something Let's will end. just an- all purge that the- from our brain right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> The privacy provision. I yeah. think something will probably get in the final bill. Um, this has been um, batting around for a few years. It did not get into the the opioid legislation of two years ago that CARA uh, has had, uh, was part of uh, 21st Century Cures. I think something will get in, but I'm not positive. We won't know for... And wait, they may decide this really fast, though. They want to get this done. They want to... We might see a deal between the House and Senate. They've been what we call pre-conferencing, in other words, talking to each other. Yeah, but
0: have, I mean, normally, uh, you know, what, what in regular order that we don't have anymore, the House passes a bill, the Senate passes a bill, and then they have a conference, and it usually takes weeks and weeks and weeks, but... They've
2: been pre-conferencing. In yeah. other words, they have they sort of know what their bills have looked like. They're working on... They've been working on... the uh, The inpatient business is really... It's not so ideological. It's how much money and for what conditions how to word it i don't i, I think something i'll get in there um, Privacy is a little bit more ideological. My bet is that something gets in, but I, I may be wrong. But I also see this moving fast. They're saying they want to uh, maybe conference, uh, in other words, uh, reconcile the House and Senate versions maybe as early as tomorrow. They want the House to vote next week. They want to get this to the president well before elections. I mean, it's it's politically—we'll we'll go back to what's in it in a second. But politically, there was a lot of speculation at first that they would stall it because the Republicans didn't want the Democrats to have a success to run on. But it, it became um, something that every—you know, it's nice to see Washington and actually function and agree on things. This is a public health emergency. It became a lot less ideological. Well,
3: and also the president Everybody tweeted wants, about it.
2: Right. The president tweeted about it. <laughs> but also, I mean, yes, it helps Democrats to run it out. It helps Republicans to run it, it Helps. It's, it's in everybody's interest, actually, to go home and say, we passed a bipartisan opioid bill. And, you know, it's such a crisis. It is such a terrifying thing going on in our country. And it
0: affects, affects it Republican affects districts and Democratic districts. And you know,
2: we are at a point 72, where... 72,000
1: yeah. people are dying every year. It's I mean, we, uh, someone issue. I
2: don't even know, but... In, in a, Someone in my world who I've never even met, a young person, I don't know, 25-ish, died this week. And I don't know anything about the circumstances. But we – and, you know, he could have had a chronic disease or whatever. But we live in a world where the first thought – and maybe it wasn't the correct thought. When I saw a young person dying, my first thought was, is this an opioid crisis? And I don't really want to live in that world. And neither does Congress. I mean, we're going to live in it for a while because this bill, as as my colleagues around this table all said, it does good things. But it's – you know, it's – it's not the solution. It will not save 72,000 lives Yeah, next to,
3: to year. Rebecca's point, so 72,000 people, that's what the CDC estimates are the number of people who died of drug overdoses in Most last year. Most of which, year. but not all opioids. Most of right? which, but not all of which are opioids. Uh, and some of them are more than one uh, drug. But what we see in that trend is that a rising number of people who are dying from opioid abuse are dying because of fentanyl. Uh, which is a sort of synthetic opioid that is often mixed into street heroin and also mixed into other kinds of drugs that people buy on the black market. And so I think what that shows us is that while... It is clear that the medical system had a very important role to play in the kind of origins of this epidemic with overprescribing, with, uh, you know, the kind of flooding of the market with some of these opioid pill medications that a lot of people who are using opioids now and especially people who are dying from opioid use right now are dying from medicine, not from medicines that they got from a doctor, but from drugs that they're buying on the street. And so that is a different kind of public health crisis than the kind of public health crisis that is being addressed by a lot of these bills that are part of this uh, congressional package. And if you talk to public health experts, they say... There's lots of, there's still too much prescribing of opioids. There still are people who are becoming addicted because they uh, received a medication that they shouldn't have, or people who are being put at increased harm because they break their leg and their doctor doesn't know that they're an opioid, uh, have an opioid use disorder. I mean, these things are still happening. Public health officials think that a lot of these things to try to reform the medical system, the privacy system, the safety system of our drugs, uh, that all of that is beneficial. But I think there, when we think about really solving the problem of the opioid epidemic, I think there also are going to have to be more solutions that think about what happened to those people who are no longer in contact with the medical system, who are buying what they think is heroin on the street that may have fentanyl in it. And the criticism that I've heard most often of this package of legislation is that with the exception of this provision that will allow people to spend more time in inpatient facilities if they have Medicaid, which is actually a little controversial in the addiction treatment uh, community whether inpatient treatment is is a best option for people um, there isn't a lot else in these bills that deals with treatment there's not yeah there's, there's a some. lot of
2: tr- de- what they call demonstration projects try this try that there's state programs, I mean, grant they, programs yeah, the, the the and its grant is not permanent funding so that um, some of the providers the rehab um, people re- rehabilitate the the, the addiction medicine people say, you know, it's hard to staff up and build out your programs and respond to a crisis if you don't know that you're going to have the money a year, for, you know, if it's a short term grant. But I, I think there are a couple of interesting things related to what Margaret just said. Is I mean, we've heard the president talking a lot about law enforcement, um, you know, executing drug dealers and things like that. This is a public health bill. This, this really is endorses medication-assisted treatment. It, it does expand a bit who can prescribe these things. It is a public health bill. The ex, the, the real um, judiciary sort of law enforcement piece of it, enforcement piece, is, as Margaret just said, the fentanyl, which is coming in through the mail. It's very powerful. You don't need a lot of it, so they can, they're
1: can they mailing it. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin. Right. So, um, it's
2: not all
3: being mailed, though. There's a lot of discussion about the fact that it's right, mailed, it's, and there is a part of, of this right. legislation that the president advocated for that will try to uh, right. Nobody, prevent
2: it but from coming the even the, I mean, the public health advocates were pleased by the fact that this is a public health medication-oriented bill, which is good as a framework moving forward. And this this extra enforcement of fentanyl. I mean, there's nobody in the public health community who's not, a, a, you know, who doesn't want to stop the fentanyl. So the, the the law enforcement piece is something that everybody could agree on, but the philosophy is. A public health bill, and I think the mental health community, the addiction community, the public health people, and the first responders, and you know everybody who's dealing with the overdose crisis, likes that. But they don't think it's it's not um, it's not there's a there's it's a it's a mishmash of sixty or seventy bills, none of which are very big. So it's a massive bill with a less than massive impact.
3: Congress should also get some credit for having passed in some previous legislation a lot of money to provide right. grants to states to pursue various public health strategies closer to the ground. So this particular bill is not providing a lot of money for law enforcement or for treatment for people who already have opioid use disorders. But Congress has provided some funding for that. In they the put past, a couple of billion dollars
2: over the last two years. I think it's six billion, but it's hard to. And that money, and that, I think we're and in the actually,
3: second year of those grants. Yeah. So it's just sort of starting to get out to the states.
1: Right. The Department of Health and Human Services put out some money yesterday, about a billion dollars, in the money that's already been appropriated. And we also saw Congress put additional money in the labor,
0: health and human services. You're getting ahead. That's our next
2: topic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> She's so good at transitioning <laughs> for you. You have her so well trained. Yeah,
0: good, good segue. Um, because the Senate, in addition to passing the opioid bill this week, passed a House-Senate compromise bill to fund the Department of Health and Human Services for the fiscal year that starts October 1st, so just a couple of weeks. Um, these appropriation bills are the ones that need to be passed and signed in order to avert a government shutdown that we seem to hear about this time of year pretty much every year. Uh, there are supposed to be 12 separate bills that fund the federal government. The last time Congress passed each of the 12 bills on time, meaning before October 1st, was sometime in the 1990s. Uh, more often, all or most of them get packaged into what's known as an omnibus spending. Bill, You hear that a lot. And a final version usually doesn't get passed until well into the fiscal year, usually after Congress has passed multiple continuing resolutions, which are things that keep the lights on at current funding until they can get around to passing the actual spending bill. So what's different about this year that Congress is actually getting at least they're not all of them, but at least the HHS part of this done in advance. How did that happen?
1: Well, I think that there is a a push because there have been talks about shutdowns. There have been talks about border walls and the need for funding for that. And so I think there was also a budget deal in February. There was exactly (laughs) Yes, you got ahead of me there. Um, And that sort of sets the framework and makes it easier for appropriate appropriators to go ahead and and move forward. Yeah, when you give them money, it's easier for them to spend it. It is. (laughs) That's true. And so um, it's really hard for lawmakers to vote against defense and health and human services because the Republicans want to vote for defense. The Democrats want to vote for health and human services. And so
0: they've packaged them together in this They put them
1: together, so it's hard to move. So now, you know, there had been some concerns about a shutdown, but this this two bill package is the bulk of discretionary domestic spending for the year they also have made progress on other bills and the the fu- the bill that they just the senate just passed and the house is going to clear next week will contain a provision that will say that the government is funded through december 7th
0: so the rest the the, the departments that are not covered in this bill exactly right yes
1: and so i think it's interesting to see what congress did with the with the HHS and education provision. They gave $11 billion more than President Trump wanted. They provided more money, $2 billion more for the National Institutes of Health. They gave some more money, about $500 million more for opioid grants. And they're moving forward. They avoided a lot of education cuts that the president wanted to make. And I think that as we see this this moving forward, Congress can still do a few things. They voted 93 to 7 in the Senate this week to move this forward and get it off their plates. It was not quite as high as the 99 to 1 vote on opioids. But But
0: I I did see some Republicans complaining on the Labor HHS bill that they didn't, you know, they wanted, they frequently use, appropriation bills are all about money. Um, But they, that's where they also, yeah, by (laughs) definition. People don't know that. Um, But they also use it to put what they call policy riders on. In fact, the Hyde Amendment, this is the fight over the making the Hyde Amendment permanent because the Hyde Amendment that bans most abortion, federal abortion funding, lives in the Labor HHS Appropriations Bill. And it last a year, because that's how long funding bills last. And the Republicans, particularly in the House, but some in the Senate, I guess those seven who voted against this bill, were very unhappy that there is Republican um, control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and yet they couldn't get any more of these, you know, any more restrictions that they wanted. They didn't; they couldn't defund Planned Parenthood. They couldn't do some, some other things, particularly on the abortion front that they had wanted to do. And I saw Mike Lee up complaining, conservative, you know, Republican from Utah, um, that they couldn't do this. But the fact is that spending Bills still in the Senate need sixty votes. So, given that that that, so they basically couldn't do these things, and this has been the tension on funding the government ever since the Republicans took over, right? But they've also remember they
2: they are able to run on um, on an anti-abortion. You know, if you're a Republican, you can talk about the judges and you can talk about other programs this administration has done. So they've. They have plenty of things to talk about as they go home and talk to their their constituents for for whom this is a big issue. Um, the the I mean there was a the labor age bill which is labor health education and the name should really be and culture wars has <laughs> traditionally been there's an abortion fight there's just there in uh, earlier years there were stem cell fights there's all sorts of cultural um, and educational as well as um, uh, and in labor, labor. too I mean, it's yeah just, all three it's departments just, <laughs> it's just usually. <laughs> Um, a very difficult, I mean, it, it's a mess. Um, but it was in everybody's interest this year, uh, political interest, uh, I think, to just move on. And they do have, if, if you're an anti abortion conservative, trying to explain the difference between the Hyde Amendment being renewed every year versus making it stronger and more. I mean, it's been in law since what, 70s? What was it, July? It, it took uh, 1970. Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. So, I mean, it's, it gets renewed every year. So nothing – they didn't lose anything, no, but they did not – I mean, I think the big thing for the Republicans is they clearly would have liked to have defunded Planned Parenthood, and that's the one they can't – but they can promise, elect more of us and we'll do it next year. So it was a win-win. Also, I mean, it was
3: a win-win. There's also kind of a broader context, which is, you know, the Republican Congress and the Obama administration, which included many of the same lawmakers, was really devoted to kind of – Deficit reduction, fiscal austerity, balancing the budget. That was a big message for them. That was an important theme for them. And I think part of the reason why appropriations bills tended not to pass in the normal way is that they kind of used – Uh, These appropriations bills or these continuing resolutions as leverage points to try to cut back on various programs and reduce government spending. And it is quite remarkable how this Congress with this president seem much less concerned about that set of issues. We've seen not just that they have passed a number of these spending bills, all of which have increased government spending on various programs and without a lot of fuss, but also, that they passed this tax reform bill that you know really increased the deficit a lot. Uh, it just seems that that focus on fiscal austerity as a Republican message has really faded away. And you see, there still are people in the Trump administration, including the OMB director uh, Mick Mulvaney, who kind of is from that old school. And I think that's part of why you know Rebecca was noting that the. president's official budget recommends cutting back on all these programs. But Congress seems to feel uh, quite comfortable just ignoring those uh, proposed cuts and just uh, going ahead and spending either what they were spending before or spending more in some cases. But when was
2: the last time a president's budget got through? I mean, it never does. (laughs) No, it never never does. But
3: it's just it's it's interesting because you might have imagined that once Republicans took control of the entire government, that they would go more in the direction that the Republican Congress went in the Obama years. And instead, they really are, uh, you know, going in this more kind of generous... that they, I mean, part
0: of that is because in the Senate, that's the only way they can get it through. They need they need it's democratic a very, votes. It's a, so it's so, so the, the big question before we move off of this, is the president going to sign this? Because remember, he threatened... <laughs> Just this back- morning
2: as we were coming in, and I did Sweden. not even read the whole... I didn't even read the whole story because I was walking in here when, it, when I got the email. But yeah, he's threatening to shut it down. But as Rebecca pointed out, there's when you shut down the government, you can't shut down all of it. You shut down um, whatever discretionary pieces of it have not been passed. So even if there is a shutdown, I can't remember the status of the National Park Bill, Smithsonian. <laughs> um, but you, certain things would, if if we get to a shutdown, it will be a narrower slice of the government. It'll still That's inconvenience narrow. people, it'll still harm people, and I don't want to make light of it, but it's not that the entire federal government is going to close. It won't even be as much as and thirteen. Um, so or the other ones last year when they were in the middle of the night for four hours and no one noticed, right?
0: Uh, well no, but there was a couple of days shut down in January yeah, I, because they didn't do one of these they were right, having right. the brinksmanship over these continuing resolutions. Right. So. But it
2: won't it 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 will it will not be imperceptible, but it will not be Affecting everything about everybody's life, so then it becomes sort of a battle of attrition of who thinks it helps who politically as you go into October toward the midterms. But
0: but there's but there is no funding for for the president's border wall in these bills, which is what he said he wouldn't sign. Right, so we'll see. I
2: it. mean, there's still OMB. You know, an OMB official today talked about we haven't ruled out a shutdown, on the president. I mean, maybe one of you read more of the story. Who wasn't? I was having my watch battery change across the street before I came here, and I was looking at the watch. Um, the um the Maybe one of you knows more, but I mean, it just seemed Trump threatening. But then tomorrow, or three hours, or while we're talking, he could have said, "Well, maybe not." I mean, you right. know, it, what he says about the shutdown. What day did it? say? September twentieth. What he says about the shutdown on September twentieth is still part of a bargaining position. It does not, it does not mean that come October one we have a shutdown.
0: And the House again hasn't needs to pass this before it actually yes. gets the president to decide whether he's going to sign or not. All right. Well. Uh, still, still working on Capitol Hill. We don't normally talk about bill introductions, but I will note that a bipartisan group of senators has unveiled a bill that would put limits on so-called surprise medical bills. That would put to an end, or at least it's intended to put to an end, the type of enormous out-of-network bills that KHN and NPR have featured in our "Bill of the Month" series on the radio, in print, and here on the podcast. And Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy even mentioned two of the stories, including last month's six-figure hospital bill for a teacher in Texas who had a heart attack uh, when he was uh, unveiling the bill formally. So my question is, can this pass and why hasn't Congress already fixed this?
1: This is not something that's going to pass this year. Cassidy has already acknowledged that. He's setting the stage for next year. Um, This is part of a larger effort that he is trying to embark on to have some bipartisan, believe it or not, discussions around health care about things that ought to be fixed. This is, um, we also saw this week he introduced a bill with a Democrat on administrative cost and how much administrative waste is in the health care system. And so I think it's interesting that they're trying to handle these things. Um, surprise bills are something that have gotten a lot of public attention. And we've seen states, state legislatures moving forward on this. And it's really cost is the big, the big issue in America that has not been solved. And so We will see some continuing discussions, no action this year though.
2: I mean, but it's an interesting group of people. It was high-powered senators, including um it was bipartisan, and it was sort of interesting that they included the Republicans behind this. Uh, included uh, Claire McCaskill, who's one of the most endangered <laughs> Democrats right. going up to her re reelection, um, and this is a really good consumer issue for, for her. She's to She's been her investigating name. this, though. This has been right. a big issue for her. But it's also the timing, right? I mean, they're they're doing it now and giving her a month to talk about it. Um I do think that they've put it in the bloodstream. I mean, it's not going to pass in the next few weeks. It's not going to pass in, in in this session, but. Um, um, I do think they've um, endorsed it, – it's an endorsement in a way that this is something that requires congressional scrutiny and possibly action. I mean it's a fight because the insurers don't want to – the whole – the insurers create in-network versus out-of-network as a way of saving money, of lowering the, the, the fees they pay. So if that they, they lose that – or, and it probably it won't destroy all networks but there'll be some kind of protections about you know emergency situations when you know if you're unconscious you can't call and find out if the or As you I, go to an inpatient you're going to an inpatient ho- hospital and you'll have protection As I read the bill actually it's the
3: doctors who get a little bit of the worse end of the stick so if you can imagine these negotiations between hospitals doctors and insurers about who's in network and who's out of network what the insurer says is give me a good discount on your prices and I'll bring all my customers to you and so the hospital has to Decide, okay, I'm gonna give you a discount in exchange, I'm gonna get all these customers. No, I'm not gonna give you a discount. Okay, none of the customers are gonna come here. Occasionally, especially in an emergency, uh, like the the one that was in the bill of the month in the podcast a couple weeks ago, a patient is going to have an emergency, or they're not going to know whatever. They go to the hospital, and then they become the victim of this because they end up with this huge out of network bill because the hospital is is giving them full price, not the discount that they would give to an insured person. This, but the having this ability to be out of network gives both sides some leverage. It gives the hospital the leverage to say, no, I'm not going to give you a bargain basement price because if you don't make a deal with me, if you don't come to the table and we don't go back and forth, then I'm just going to charge this super high price. And it gives the insurance company some leverage to say, well, if you don't give a good discount, you're only going to occasionally get this big bill. You're not going to get all of our patients. And as I read this discussion draft, which the legislators who brought it forward were clear, it's sort of for discussion and, and I think there will be changes to it. But what it says is it basically caps how high the price can go. So if if you if insurer and doctor or insurer and hospital don't make a deal and the patient goes there, they can't get, like, sky's the limit price anymore. They can get a price that's like a percentage of the Medicare price. And that's actually not that much relative to what a lot of doctors and hospitals charge out of network patients.
1: But it's the insurer, not
3: the patient who has to pay the
1: difference. The insurer has to pay 125% of the median price, and there are a couple of other options, I think.
3: I mean, I think it does it, – it squishes both sides of the negotiation, but my sense is that the way that this bill is written, it probably actually – Uh, hurts the provider side of the negotiation a little bit more than it hurts the insurer side?
0: Well, yeah, I'm sure there will be lots and lots and lots of pushback. But on the other hand, you know, it, 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 this from a PR point of view, you know, weeks before an election when this is clearly an issue that voters a, really right, and, care and about. And it's a genuine policy And problem. it is a genuine I mean, policy the, the, the,
2: the, the situations where it crops up the most are one is, is the emergency that we've discussed. But the other one is the anesthesiology, where you might have an inpatient surgeon, an inpatient, you know, cardiologist or whatever. At an, an in, inpatient at, at, hospital. I mean, in-network. In, in, in sorry, network, I'm yeah. sorry, right. In-network. In you've done everything right. You've done You've chosen in-network – you know, it's elective surgery. You've planned. You've done everything right. You're doing um, an in-network hospital, an in-network surgeon. Your surgeon – your follow-up physician or the physician referring you is in-network, and then you get an out-of-network anesthesiologist. And I personally tried to find out when uh, this happened in my family twice, um, and we could not find out. We could not find out even there before being put under who – whether the person was in-network or not. So you can – it is – i mean i I was pretty aggressive about it because I didn't want a six thousand dollar bill, and I, I could imagine. not find out <laughs> I could not find out and um and I was lucky right we didn't it wasn't in network but um that's a situation where you know it just seems abusive to patients who do to stay in network and then mm-hmm. get you know a six thousand in that case it would have been six you you know we read about far bigger than six
3: right and I've done some reporting on this you know it turns out that in the emergency room setting at least. In most hospitals that you go to, if the hospital is in network, so will the emergency room physician. But... There are emergency room physician practices for whom being out of network is essentially a business strategy. So we wrote in our reporting, based on some research by a team of economists at Yale, about a company called Envision that owns a lot of practices. And they contract with hospitals to provide the emergency room doctors. And they basically have a practice. You can see this pattern all around the country. When they enter a new hospital, all of a sudden, all the bills go, 100% go to out of network. And what it shows is that, you know, there is the ability. Ability to kind of exploit this system, I think what this bill is trying to do is trying to reduce the incentives to do that. So it's not that all doctors and hospitals do this, but there are certainly are some that do it on a totally
0: routine basis. It's their business model.
3: It's their business <laughs> yeah. model. All
0: right. Well, we were going to talk about um, uh, open enrollment, but I think we'll hold that off until next week um, because we'll be in Texas and we'll be able to talk about uh, how much things cost there. So we're going to move to our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Uh, who wants to go first this week? Joanne.
2: I can. This is actually an op-ed for the New York Times um, by a genetic counselor named Laura Hercher. And she's writing about a someone who she counseled. It's a, a man in his 30s, um, a, a well-educated, technically savvy, which is relevant, who uh, did a genetic Genetic test, uh, you know, one of the direct to consumer, twenty three and Me, and found out that he was at high uh, not just high risk, but pretty much destined to get the early onset form of Alzheimer's in his forties. And obviously, it, well, first of all, I mean, he had the sophistication to understand the report. I'm not sure I would have seen that. Um, if you read this story and you see how complicated the explanation was, and then um, the, the then he took another test from another company and found out no, he didn't have this gene. And and for our relevance, not only us uh, as raising questions about these uh, direct-to-consumer over the you know tests you can do and, and the implications and how do you understand them, but he also had and there, trouble... And there was
0: a huge... When 23 me yeah. went to the FDA, you know, it was years and years and years before they were allowed to even do any right. of this.
2: Right. And then... So now they're allowed to do more of it and it'll be more in the future. And But the other... Component of this was he had then had trouble getting insurance coverage to get actual testing done by doctors because he didn't ha- he needed the condition to get the tests, but he was trying to get the test to find out whether he was you know it was t- a total insurance catch twenty two. He finally got it worked out, but it, it raised a lot of questions that I think will become more common and more disturbing.
3: Margot. So I have forgotten the headline of my article, but I wanted to uh, draw your attention to a piece written by my colleague at The Times, Trip Gabriel, uh, which is sort of a profile of Joe Manchin and the Senate race in West Virginia. So Manchin is one of these kind of red state Democratic Senate incumbents who um, is in a state that Trump won by more than 40 points. And his whole campaign is centered around healthcare. It's sort of the central issue of his campaign. And this piece really goes deep on how he's using it, why he thinks it's important, how it's playing in the state. And I do think it's a really good illustration of a theme that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is the way in which healthcare has stopped being a liability for Democrats, even in very red areas, and is starting to be very central to the way that they're running for office.
0: And his opponent is, of course, one of the attorney—is the state attorney general, former congressional staffer who we all know, but uh, more importantly is one of the attorneys general who's suing over the Affordable Care Act trying to get the whole thing invalidated. That's true.
3: So it has brought it into very sharp focus. And he's featured in the piece as well. And I I also just relatedly want to make sure that anyone who has not seen Joe Manchin's latest advertisement (laughs) in which he shoots a uh, copy
0: of the lawsuit with a uh, gun— Which has a whole different Second Amendment Right <laughs> there. Exactly. Ah, I really implore you to. And too. he shoots it right through the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <right> to, Rebecca. <laughs> it's a
1: good shot. It's fantastic. All right. So, a quick shameless plug of the CQ Weekly magazine cover this week is about healthcare care and politics. So, check it out. Um, my extra credit is Behind Your Rising Health Care Bills Secret Hospital Deals That Squelch Competition by Anna Matthews. So, we've talked, just building on the discussion about costs, we've talked about how expensive health care is in the United States. And what the Wall Street Journal did really well is build on the idea that everyone knows, which is hospital care is the biggest chunk of healthcare spending and it's growing exponentially, and talk about how that's being done and some of the factors that are a part of that. And part of what she found were these secret contract clauses that hospitals insisted be part of their contracts. And it prevents all sorts of changes in the insurance design, prevents narrower networks. And they were insisting, the hospitals were insisting insisting that the insurers include them in all of their contracts. And some of the examples are just really interesting. There's one where um, Walmart had sought to exclude 5% of the worst-performing providers in the United States based on quality. And they couldn't do it because the insurance companies that they were contracting with had these contracts with, it, with providers that wouldn't allow it. So I recommend it.
0: So that's good. another
2: growth industry is lawyers writing secret clauses for, uh, I'm sure there are far more people than we imagine whose professional life consists of writing secret clauses.
0: For hospital teams. Well, um, uh, mine is about politics, and it's from our podcast colleague, Alice Olstein at Politico. It's called Obamacare Lawsuit Boosts Democrats in State AG Races, which is... <laughs> which goes to the mansion race. Um, but it's mostly about how this year there is surprising interest in lots of states about the normally ignored race for state attorney general. Um, and that's at least in part due to the lawsuit that we've been talking about. We haven't heard back from the judge yet, by the way. but that is, We can you know, start
2: putting a pool on whether how yeah. close to the election or how, <laughs> how immediately after the election But there that are
0: 18, 18 Republican state attorneys general uh, suing to invalidate the Affordable Care Act, and 16 Democratic attorneys general are in court defending it, um, I would point out this is far from the first time that state AGs have succeeded in nationalizing an issue. They led the charge against the tobacco industry. What was that in the 1990s? 1980,
2: and then and the NFIB, the, the first big Supreme Court case on health care to 2012
0: 12, was the ruling right, right, right. right. was also was also a bunch of state attorneys general. So they they are increasingly politically active. But it's interesting that that they're that this is the first time I remember that the actual campaigns for attorney general are turning on some of these issues. So it was pretty interesting.
2: Well, it's the you know it's running for the Mister Mister or Ms. Resistance. That's right. Yeah,
0: pretty much. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at Health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kinnon. At Sanger Katz. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week from Texas. In the meantime, be healthy.